Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. The Dead Woman by Dr. David H. Keller. This is first published in a magazine called Strange Stories, April 1939. Um, other authors in this issue include Robert Block, Henry Kuttner, August Derleth, Amelia Reynolds-Long, C.L. Moore, a bunch of other folks, Frank Belknap-Long, you know, basically a cast of very famous authors. Why are we reading one of the least famous authors in this book or this magazine um i'll tell you why eric <laughs> i was reading an old fanzine from 1933 um it was uh the fantasy fan november 1933 and there was a column a one-page column um by a guy named mort weisinger i think that's how you pronounce his name He's uh, relatively famous in comic book circles as the editor of the Superman comics in well, probably 30 years from the 50s to the 70s, something like that. Uh, maybe I'm getting the timeline a little off. Um, but he's famous for being the editor of the Superman comics and kind of being responsible for how weird they were and also how successful they were. He also uh, had a hand in the the Superman TV show, if you remember that. Oh, yes. Uh, I didn't watch it while it was airing, but I have seen it uh, uh, in my youth, and um, that was a pretty interesting show. Um, and uh, the column is entitled Celebrities I've Met <laughs> by Mortar, Mortimer Weisinger. He was uh, 18 at the time of this column being written. And I'm st I started reading it, and I was like, wow, he has met a lot of celebrities. Um he uh, he starts it off saying, Dr. T. Connor Sloan. And I'm like, who's that? <laughs> um, uh, uh, who wishes he were related to the owner of Sloan's Liniment. So basically, he's just this is a, a brag list of all the famous people he's, he's met. Hugo Gernsback, who, when commended for his ability to turn out new editorials month after month, modestly shrugged it off with, quote, it's all in a day's work. Uh, Harry Bates, who lavasively, uh, I would say evasively, but it says lavasively, answers all questions pertaining to the identity of Anthony Gilmore by saying, quote, I'll speak only upon advice of my counsel. Ha, ha, ha. Harry Bates is uh, also an editor, and I, th I think he was an editor, and he was he's famous for uh, a story that got turned into a, a famous, although I'm not sure why it's so famous, science fiction movie, um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, a. Merritt, who was, is probably the most famous person on this list uh, at the time, who, though he is perhaps the greatest man I have ever known, <laughs> is incredibly unaffected for a person with his success. And then, on the next one on the list, Dr. David Henry Keller, who can tell a story better than he can write, as witness the tale, The Dead Woman. Told to me in his new in his room at a hotel in New in at the Hotel New Yorker, and I'm like, I know David H. Keller. Uh, we did a show on one of his stories, uh, "The Thing in the Cellar" by David H. Keller, a very memorable story. And I'm I, I'll go track this down. And then uh, right when I said that, I read the next one, Mrs. David Keller. 
who enjoys piquing one's curiosity when quizzed about the name of the magazine for which her husband writes under a nom de plume. And he goes on, Angelica Keller, who is the Angelica of the scores of Keller's stories and upon whom Dr. Keller's story, a psychological experiment, was based. I'm like, wow, he really met the whole family in that hotel room. Um, and he goes on to talk about um, other folks, but I think I, sh- I could just leave it there and say that, yes, that I found this a very interesting way of tracking down stories. Um, I tracked it down. I started reading it, and then I sent it to you. I promptly forgot that I had sent it to you, and then I noticed it was on the schedule. <laughs> and then I, I said, oh, I got to read this for my, for my podcast. And what I did... Uh, and I had forgotten all this backstory. I read it to to myself aloud, um, and I found it to be a very effective story. So that's how I found it. Um, he, uh, this guy Mort Weisinger, found it um, through the audio medium of having the author narrate it. And I'm, I, I think this story is too long for us to read it aloud. Um, it's oh, it's seven eight pages. Um, it would take about half, half, I don't know, 20 minutes, something like that, half an hour, maybe not. Um, but uh, I think everybody should go to the website, download the PDF and read it to themselves aloud or to a friend. Uh, I take it that's not the way you uh, experience the story. I, (laughs) I read it because my friend Jesse sent it to me. But you, you 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 didn't read it uh, mouthing the words. Out I did loud. not. No, um, I always think about how you know I'm an audiobook guy. My website's called SFF Audio, right? I, I love the experience of being read to as a kid, and uh, you know when people weren't willing to do that, I had to read it on the page. But I I have always retained that love of listening to a story rather than having it you know pop out of my eyes and. In this case, um, I think it it is a good story that works as a story to be read aloud. Some some work better that way, and I think this is one of them. I'm sure that you are right about that, Jesse. Uh, when one reads aloud, one is inevitably offering an interpretation. Mm-hmm. This particular story. Um, let me give a quick praise for those who haven't read it. This particular story, I think, makes that interpretive act crucial. The story begins with um, what may be a first or third person narrator. We don't know. Um, he says that, um, well, actually, let me read the first few paragraphs. Sure. Um, But that becomes a frame within which we get a story told by someone mentioned in the outer frame. And then we never come back to the outer frame. So Mm -hmm. it's a front frame story that has all sorts of implications, um, front frames framing. Um, Then uh, the story within the story, which is by far the bulk of the of the tale is told by the person mentioned in the outer frame uh, who uh, says he's found with the the body of his wife and a knife and his hands bloody. 
And then he goes on to explain what's been going on to a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And at the end, he says, well, doctor, what would you have done? <laughs> so, you know, okay, what would you have done? So apparently he, the, the speaker, the inner speaker, is surprised that people will not accept his view of things and that he has been uh, being charged with murder. Uh, I should tell you, uh, in my experience, framing in short stories, even in novels, um, no matter what else they do, they have three distinctly different uses. In a full-framed story, that is one that begins in the frame and ends going back to that same frame, no matter what else is going on, the story concerns the education of the outermost narrator. Mm -hmm. In a back-framed story, the use of the frame injects surprise and or in, and it tries to instigate reevaluation on the part of the reader. Mm -hmm. In a front-framed story... Like we have here. Exactly. That technique characterizes the kind of claim or plausibility being made for the innermost story. But also, this one ends with a question... I understand that, but my, my point is this is a general literary law mm -hmm. that, that front frame stories, the front framing is used to characterize the claim of plausibility. And since this one ends with a question, really the whole issue of plausibility is highlighted. And that's why I say that reading this aloud is crucially an act of interpretation in this instance because the innermost narrator who is being charged with murder claims that ultimately we get to this point in the story either everybody else in the world is crazy or he is mm -hmm. if we were to decide that he's crazy then you have to decide how early in his narration to 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 let his strange and and fevered mind begin to control the way in which he tells his story. Mm -hmm. And the more jerkily and insanely you tell it, the more you are getting your reader, your listener, to, in this case, come, me. Down, <laughs> right, to come down on the side that the innermost narrator is insane. But it seems to me that this story is written. One of the things that makes it really rather a nice idea for a story is that the beginning of this fellow's narration, the inner narrator's narration, his name is Thompson. The beginning of Mr. Thompson's narration sounds really quite plausible. And bit by bit, it gets less and less plausible. The question is for the reader, when do you discover that this guy must really be bonkers? And if an, a reading aloud lets you know that from the very beginning, then you lose the chance of coming to that realization on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it, it would – to have the exact proper effect, the narrator, the actor who performs it would have to make that decision and then have it sort of sneak up on the listener. 
Um, it snuck up on me because I was reading it just as words. And then I'm like, wow, <laughs> every once in a while, like I'm injecting a surprise. At, and, you know, I actually have a little drawing at, uh, on uh, page 167 of, of my face with, with his eyes wide and mouth open and a big question mark above my head on the line. Uh, but they, all, they always thought that I was the sick one. And there was not one who was willing to accept my statement about the worms. And I'm like, the worms? Right. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, okay, now I know there's something wrong with this dude. I knew there was something wrong with this dude. I just didn't understand what exactly. Right. Um, and uh, it, it is interesting the, the way the quotation marks work. Um, you know, it doesn't start with any. It starts uh, on the second page. And then it, the, there's a page break. And it says, the man gazed at the psychiatrist. Will you believe me if I tell you? And there's a quote at the beginning, a quote at the end. And then for the rest of the story, it's almost exclusively front quotes at the beginning of every paragraph. And then no closing quote at the end of every paragraph. And because I, it's just Thompson speaking. Right. And I was like, oh, well, why do they keep up this this uh, opening quote every time? Um I, I think it's interesting because it's like, who's talking? Oh, yeah, it's definitely Thompson. <laughs> and and really, that's what this is, is it's a statement, right? A, a statement of, of the case. Um, would you actually open, read that opening, uh, maybe up to that? Uh, I would, actually. Yeah, I, I think, think it's be helpful. It, I think it's worth uh, our listeners knowing what you and I know, and that is that Dr. David H. Keller is uh, considered to be the first psychiatrist who writes for the pulps. Uh, he is himself a psychiatrist, uh, and that's important. Here's how it begins. The dead woman. He was found in the room with his wife, slightly confused, a trifle bewildered, but otherwise apparently normal. He made no effort to conceal his conduct any more than he did to the knife in his hand or the pieces in the trunk. Fortunately, the inspector was an officer of more than usual intelligence, and there was no effort made to give the third degree or even secure a written confession. Perhaps the police department felt it was too plain a case. At least it was handled intelligently and in a most scientific manner. The man was well-fed, carefully bedded, and the next morning, after being bathed and shaved, was taken to see a psychiatrist. The specialist in mental diseases had the man comfortably seated. Knowing he smoked, he offered a cigar, which was accepted. Then, in a quiet, pleasant atmosphere, he made one statement and one request. I am sure, Mr. Thompson, that you had an excellent reason for acting as you did the other day. I wish you would tell me all about it. Yeah, and then uh, we start with that. The man gazed at the psychiatrist, and then we get the first... Uh, first quote from Thompson, will you believe me if I tell you? <laughs> and then we get to the end. Well, uh, no, then he, he has an answer. Uh, oh, yes. I accept every part of your story with the idea that you are convinced that you are telling me the truth. That is all I want, whispered Thompson. If everyone I talked to in the past had done that, if they had even tried to check up on my story, perhaps this would not have happened. But they always thought that I was the sick one. And then it goes on. And then we never hear a word from anyone else except That's right. Thompson. That's right. And then we're, we're left with that question at the end. Um, 
It's actually two questions. It's a compound question. Um, if you had been in my place day after day and night after night, what would you have done, doctor? What would any man have done who loved his wife? Um, I don't think uh, most uh, most people will take that to heart in the way that a person who was actually sitting there uh, listening to this. I'm pretty sure he's crazy. <laughs> crazy man. Um, I mean, that, as, a, as a psychiatrist, my diagnosis is he is crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, he, so the, the, his long narration, which is the body of the story, uh, says, you know, he and his wife were getting along fine. But then he noticed that she coughed a lot. Mm -hmm. He was losing sleep over this. And symptoms keep coming up. He reports her symptoms. She stops eating so much. Um, he sees... Um, but he engages other people like his mother-in-law to come and mm -hmm. the mother-in-law says, there's nothing wrong with Lizzie. Um, but, but he keeps seeing more symptoms and he begins to see, uh, flies landing on her face. When he walks into her room, she's lying presumably asleep, but her eyes are wide open and rolled back in her head. Um, it gets, and then he starts to have this smell that he's, uh, noticing in the house mm -hmm. as if we have a, a, a person being, you know, a, a corpse uh, mm -hmm. moldering. And since the title is The Dead Woman, I think it's quite reasonable for a reader to be thinking, oh, my goodness, she's actually dead. But if she is dead, how come everybody else says, you know, the doctor who comes to visit saying, no, she's fine. The mother-in-law saying she's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, how come everybody else says that she's fine? And we know something's going wrong with Mr. Thompson because he's a bookkeeper and he himself reports that his bosses are annoyed that he's making mistakes with his calculations. He, so, he attributes that to him not being able to sleep and his worry about his wife. Um, but uh, there, there's, a, uh, there's a, a number of points where he, he is doing his utmost to try and convince people that there's something wrong with her. Exactly. Exactly. And so going back to that beginning, um, I have for me, uh, to me, an important question. I don't know how to take that beginning. There's, the whole story could have been written just um, as a first person narrative of somebody who becomes progressively more obviously insane um, the way Poe wrote The Black Cat. Mm hmm. Um, it is a very similar story, actually, to uh, the, the another uh, Poe story in which a man, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's the one with the eye where he stares into his eye and um, shines a light into the old blind man's, you know, one eye mm -hmm. and then creeps into the room. Um, it is very, very It's the telltale heart. Telltale heart. Oh, that's the one. Yes. So it could have been done differently. It's, it's also in, in terms of having a first person narrator reveal his own uh, progressively reveal his own insanity. Um, uh, the oval, uh, both the both of those stories and some others by Poe mm -hmm. would work, but but this one has the frame. And so, if I didn't know that Keller were was in fact a psychiatrist, I would substantially question. Well, I guess I do anyway. Whether or not this opening is itself a critique of psychiatrists. Hmm. That is, it says, he was found in the room with his wife, slightly confused, a trifle bewildered, but otherwise apparently normal. He made no effort to conceal his conduct, right? 
and there's a bloody knife and pieces in the trunk. And it I doesn't don't think- say pieces of what, but we but, eventually but, figure it out. Uh, uh, well, here in the 21st century, having all this literature behind us, I, I didn't have any trouble deciding mm-hmm. what there were pieces of. Um, fortunately, the inspector was an officer of more than usual intelligence. And there was no effort made to give the third degree or even secure a written confession. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Whoever is speaking here, whether it's a third person narrator or a first person narrator, is he saying that this was an inspector of more than usual intelligence for police inspectors and showing just how arrogant this guy is, the speaker is in relation to the police? And that arrogance is not really justified. Why wouldn't you want to interrogate somebody immediately on apprehension rather than giving them the chance to manufacture and learn a uh, self-justifying story. So this this notion that the narrator, the outermost narrator, offers that the psychiatrist, the inner psychiatrist, gets to find out what he wants without any interference by the police, that's actually stupid. It's bad police procedure. And so it's possible to think Keller means this as a critique of psychiatrists. And that idea is borne out for me in one way, might be borne out, by saying the specialist in mental diseases had the man comfortably seated. Knowing he smoked, he offered a cigar, which was accepted. Mm -hmm. Cigars come up a number of times. they, They do indeed. And they are also by this time famously attributed to that quote from Freud, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And so I can't help but wonder if Keller means all of this as a critique of psychiatrists. Now, if that's the case, the inner story becomes something quite different. Why is it that Mr. Thompson has gone insane? Why is it that he uh, has seen his wife as deader and deader and deader? We have only one hint, I think. And that hint comes um, on page 70. He's thinking about his life with his wife. It had been a hard week for me because he's getting his numbers wrong. I got this marked as well. Okay. Uh, Great. So I sat down by her bed and tried to think, but more I thought the worse things seem. The more I thought, the worse things seem. The night was hot and the flies kept buzzing. Just thinking of the past and how we used to go to the movies together and laugh and sometimes come home crying and how we used to bluff about the fact that perhaps it was just as well we didn't have a child so long as we had had each other, knowing all the time that she was eating her heart out for longing to be a mother and blaming me for her loneliness. Mm. Now, you look at that, and you know you can easily see the possibility that Mr. Thompson, I mean, they, they're both, both bluffing, according to Thompson. Mm-hmm. He knows what's really going on inside him, and he believes that Lizzie knows what's going on inside her. Maybe he accepts the blame, and he can't bear the blame, and so as she becomes more and more dead to him, and I mean that metaphorically, as in their 
marriage observable by a third party, mm-hmm. she becomes more dead to him. He sees her as progressively more dead, not metaphorically, but literally. And when it gets to the point where she has been dead so long to him that she simply must be put out of her misery because she doesn't realize she's dead, that becomes his justification for actually killing her and dismembering her. This suddenly becomes a very powerful case study told only implicitly. And it's a terrific story by a psychiatrist. The reason I highlight that at interpretation at this point, Jesse, is that if that is the case, if this is a terrific psychiatrist story, why would we think that the critique of psychiatrists exists in the outermost frame? And I think the answer is this. I think the Keller is smart enough to realize that although this looks both one way and the other, maybe in life things are both one way and the other, that the whole question of believability, sanity, is only a social hunch. And maybe as a storyteller, he knows that what he's doing is manipulating our sense of what something may mean. Mm. So when he ends by saying, what would you have done, doctor? What would any man have done who loved his wife? The implicit story is, what do you believe, reader? Do you believe that everybody misunderstood? Do you believe that no one saw what was going on in this relationship? Or do you believe that the man is just a murderous criminal? Right. See, it's 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 good. There's um there is a critique of doctors uh, within the within the inner story, um, and there's also a lot of mother action going on. <laughs> uh, you you read from that part that I had marked as well um, about you know she can't be a mother. The mother-in-law says um, if you would just uh, spend more time with her, um, you'd make her fat and happy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of mothering action, and then. Um, this is on uh, the second column on page 68. This is, this is a part I marked as well. It's rather striking. During the night, I lit a candle and shading it with my hand, tiptoed in to see her. There's the uh, telltale heart, right? Mm-hmm. She had her eyes open, but they were rolled back, so all you could see was the whites. So this is exactly what that famous scene in uh, the telltale heart is, except she's got two eyes instead of the one. Well, in the telltale heart, the old man's eye is described as blue, actually. Right, but it's not a, a seeing well, eye. There's No, no, it's um, not a seeing eye. He's got cataracts. Mm-hmm. Um, she was not breathing. At least I could not tell that she was breathing. And this is his claim that she's, she's dead. He, all the evidence piles up and piles up, right, for him. At least I could not tell that she was breathing. And when I held a mirror in front of her mouth, there was no vapor on it. My mother had told me the purpose of that when I was a boy. Um, <laughs> I remember that from a movie or something. Uh, I don't remember, you know, if my mom explained to me while I was watching the movie that you could do that. But um, 
uh, this dude's mom is kind of weird if there wasn't a movie. Uh, this is 1933. Maybe there was a movie that showed that or something. This is not something that comes up on a, on a daily basis. You don't have to go and check to see if somebody's alive by putting a mirror near their face, right? So <laughs> there's some uh, mom stuff there, too. Um, but I actually want to go back to um, earlier on page 68, uh, right near the top on the first column. Um, <laughs> he says... Uh, this is right after the doctors come and check to see if she's uh, dead. Um, she She's sleeping, says the doctor. And then he says, uh, the doctor says, You worry too much about her, Mr. Thompson. Right there, my difficulty started. Here was a doctor who was supposed to know his business. And he said there was nothing wrong with my wife. And there I was, just a bookkeeper. And I just knew what was the matter. What was I to do? Tell him that he was wrong? Send for another physician? He eventually does that, right? Um, uh, he, he claims to have done all sorts of things to try to help his wife. Um, and then this phenomenon happens where she stops talking to him. She talks to the, she talks to the uh, mother-in-law, uh, her, her own mother. She makes food for him. She does all sorts of stuff for him while he's busy at work, but he won't, she won't talk to him. And then one day, uh, he comes home and the food is not made and he has to make his own food. And that's the night. I, I'm pretty sure that's the night that he kills her. Um, he doesn't think he's killing her, says he, he sees a worm crawl out of her nose or something. Um, he calls the undertaker. Undertaker says she's not dead. <laughs> and so he makes his own box for her. And where does he get it from? The cellar. Right? <laughs> it, it is very interesting, the, psych the, the levels of psychology going on in here. And uh, I didn't see that opening as a critique of the police. I thought that actually that was, that was justice being done. You don't give people the third degree. You give them a lawyer. You give them a psychiatrist if they're insane. However, your point about a guy being able to make up a story, um, this does fit the facts of, a, of, a, of another way of reading it and does contribute to, that skepticism does contribute to an alternative reading of it, which is, if you had a wife who was dead to you and was a living corpse around your house and she seemed alive to others but was, was you know, not doing all the wifely duties that a wife was supposed to do, um, and in fact, he talks about having to wash the dishes, right? Uh, traditionally a woman's job. And he has to do this three times. He comes to like it, he says, but he eventually doesn't like it. And with the wife not even talking to him anymore, with everyone saying he's crazy, he does the only thing that makes sense to him. Um, maybe the, if the divorce laws were better... <laughs> He would have not had this problem. Um, but clearly, there is a bias in terms of what a wife does for him. He says, you know, all his work problems are caused by her coughing. His, he says that he has to move out of the bedroom because of her coughing. But this all could be a story. This all could be an explanation for why he had killed his wife. And basically, it's because he wanted her dead. 
It, so, it could well be. And he could want her dead because he can't bear the blame that she has put on him, which he believes underlyingly is true. Exactly. On the next page, though, he, this narrating character, Thompson, the inner narrator. He always calls her Mrs. Thompson. Did you notice that? She does have a name, but only other people call her Lizzie. Right. Yes, he calls her Mrs. Thompson. Um, he has taken her to a, a mental specialist. And who doesn't agree with Thompson's uh, view? Nonetheless, Thompson reports he, the specialist, must have been good because he charged me $25 just for the office call. Right. Now, clearly, that is a critique of Mr. Thompson. How foolish a bookkeeper decides that if it costs that much, it must be valuable. Hmm. He doesn't know the difference between price and value. Got it. Reasonable critique. However, Freud himself argued that you must charge for therapy or people will not pay adequate attention to it. They will not believe that it's valuable. And therefore, Keller, I believe, must know that this argument that looks like it's a critique of Thompson is actually a weakness on which psychiatrists depend in order to do their work. So again, even if we think that Thompson is crazy, it looks like there is some critique of psychiatry all along, which is to say there is a critique of the possibility of constructing a story that has certainty. That deep level of understanding what's going on in the narration of something, of any series of events, that I think is well beyond the typical reputation that Keller has gotten as the years have gone by. So I'm particularly glad that you had us read this story. It may be called The Dead Woman, but it is a very live issue. Mm -hmm. There is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.